Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 82. Earlier this year, the Python Software Foundation announced the creation of the developer in residence role. The first visionary sponsors of the PSF have provided funding for this new role for one year. What development responsibilities does this job address? This week on the show, we talked to previous guest, Wukos Langa, about becoming the first CPython developer in residence. We talk about how the first months in this role are shaping up. Wukos discusses the need to address the backlog of open issues and pull requests. He also talks about how he's working to help the project's volunteers move their contributions forward. We cover his PyCon 2021 talk about generating real-time FM audio synthesis in Python. He also shares his experience developing a similar synthesis engine for an embedded hardware project. This podcast episode is brought to you by Datastax Astra DB, built on Apache Cassandra, now made easy in the cloud. Get 40 gigabytes of storage free every month at astra.dev slash Python. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Welcome back to the show, Wukush. No, pleasure to be here. So I wanted to start off talking about your PyCon 2021 talk generate buzz with real-time FM audio synthesis. I thought that was a really fun talk that you did. No, thank you. Uh, I also enjoyed doing it. It's kind of, you know, a, a little off the wall. It's it's not my typical work uh, in Python. Yeah, and it, it seems like you've taken that uh, project and kind of somewhat merged it into the other talk that you had the year before about async IO and the AI tone sort of library, which we discussed when you were on the show <laughs> Almost a year and a half ago now. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, I, I've been doing like sound work for quite a while. So th this is just kind of an evolution of, of what I've been doing in the past. So, you know, like people think of Python as this interpreted slow language where you can do a bunch of stuff, like, for example, MIDI sequencing, which is not really, you know, very heavy in terms of real-time processing. But then, you know, obviously everybody would like to also create and mangle sounds uh, in their programming languages of choice. And for the longest time, I would think that Python is unfortunately not up to the task. But turns out I was wrong. You can actually do real-time audio synthesis in Python, and this is what the talk was about. Yeah, it was really cool. And I would guess that in some ways using FM synthesis, I don't know if that's easier or, or harder than, say, other forms of, of digital synthesis. Well, they're, they're all quite different from one another. FM synthesis is quite unique in the sense that, like, it doesn't try to model electric, you know, circuits that you have in the analog world. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it just goes digital all the way. And uh, this is what Yamaha did in the 80s with the DX7 uh, synthesizer, one of the most famous synthesizers, uh, you know, in the world, in yeah. history. <laughs> it, it's kind of still, you know, considered cheesy, you know, here and there because of how 
overused that sound was in the 80s. But at this point, we are so far from the 80s that it's also becoming quite nostalgic. So just recreating those sounds like was you know, quite a pleasure to me. And it turns out that you can actually go and uh, create pretty, pretty, uh, well, like indistinguishable sounds from the original. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty passable, I would say. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. I, I totally understand what you're saying. Like, I think a lot of people, when they think of eighties music, they, they hear that crystal piano oh, yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. But I love the, the way that People were using it with like video games and trying to generate, you know, all the different parts of the music, like the kind of funky like drums and bass and other things that you can kind of emulate in, in FM in its own kind of funky way. Absolutely. For a short while before memory was very cheap in large quantities, like having long samples of a big library of sounds was not really that feasible for sound cards. So instead, you had sound cards in PCs, in early PCs that were also rocking Yamaha uh, chips that were <laughs> FM chips. Yep. So those gains, those like early 90s to mid 90s gains, very often also have like wonderful FM heavy soundtracks. Like some of the Sega consoles also are exactly the same. They also have Yamaha chips in them. So this sort of sounds like is really nostalgic to a lot large audience. Yeah, definitely think the Doom soundtrack or absolutely or Command and Conquer or things like that <laughs> I could think of. Yeah. Cool. Kind of looking at the timeline as an outsider, it looked like you started to to play in the FM world with Python. And then you got more involved with this company called Polyend. You had mentioned the the tracker when you were on the show. Yep. That I think you had bought one. And then you kind of got, <laughs> well, I'll let you explain it, but it sounds like you got involved with working with them. Yeah. Like, so what are trackers? Just like a minute on that. So yeah, sure. th those are programs like made famous uh, in the 80s and early 90s that allowed for programming of music using very short samples. And that music could be used in games, in other programs like at the times for Commodore 64 and for Amigas and whatnot and whatnot. They are kind of uh, weird in the sense that they are sequences of, say, four tracks. Time goes down in the sequence, so it really looks like you're programming music in Excel. Yeah. <laughs> but, but what that gives you is kind of a notation that has the verbosity and the richness of pretty much, you know, music notation, just with all the effects that you need and all the settings that you need for uh, computer music. So uh, my first steps in actually producing music on a computer were with trackers, like way back when in like the 90s with uh, the Amiga. So uh, Polyend, a Polish company, turns out, uh, released a hardware tracker, a device that you can just bring with you wherever. It has a screen, it has controls that are tailor-made for this workflow it you know you can use any usb power source including power banks that will let you you know make music for tens of hours on end because it's very very power efficient um, and it's also got like an fm radio and line in sampling and whatnot so it is a pretty much like a standalone audio workstation so i i got very excited as a user I was like oh i i want that you know like <laughs> 
Yeah. First of all, I, I was nostalgic of trackers like of the past, but also this sounded like a very focused device, if you know what I mean. Like now you can obviously have a phone that does everything, but you know, like in the middle of you doing a thing, it'll interrupt you with some Twitter notification or whatever else. Or you can have a laptop which can also do everything, but at the same time, like it, it is quite hard to actually focus on just doing a single thing uh, right. Uh, and also it's, you know, like until the M1 Max right now, like just talking about like tens of hours of battery life was just, you know, fiction. Uh, that, that, that couldn't happen. So I was very excited about this device. I bought it and it turned out not to be perfect. Like it was it was great for what it did, but it, it had quite a bunch of things that, you know, I mm, mm, essentially found as bugs. So I just reported them, you know, like... <laughs> <laughs> one, two, three. Some of them I had suggestions how they can be fixed. Others, um, like downright, I kind of t- told them like exactly what's wrong. So after a while, they were like, "Hey, like, sounds like you act, you're actually technical. You can do this. Like, you know, if if you want, you can just look at the code and maybe fix a bunch of things." And it was embedded C plus And I was like, "Well, you know, I have some C Python experience, so C Python and interpreter written in C." But C++ is this huge thing that I was always very scared of at Facebook, where C++ was heavily used for backend services. Mm. But it was like a gigantic language, you know, all those templates and everything. Like, understanding what is going on is very hard to somebody who is not a seasoned C++ programmer. So I was kind of, you know, wary of like, where is that going to (laughs) go? But looking at the code, it turned out that embedded C++ programming is much different from regular, well, desktop or server-grade programming because a lot of the things that, you know, you can do when you have hundreds of megs of memory and, you know, multiple cores of CPU power and whatnot, like, you cannot do any of those things. So you simplify a lot. Like, a lot of the memory management is really static because you cannot allow yourself to run out of memory in a device that is a real-time device, right? A lot of the other constructs that are very complex, you avoid because you want everything to have a very clear, obvious path, like what is going to execute at any given point. Because again, your computing power is kind of limited, so you cannot at any point actually run out of it because it's real-time audio generation. If it starts dropping out, like somebody at a gig will now complain because you just ruined his performance. So his or hers. So like all of this actually makes programming for this much more pleasurable than I would ever expect of C++ code, you know? So I ended up actually being quite productive in this, even though there were not really many new features I could add at this point to the uh, to the tracker since it was already a pretty mature pro- um, product at this point. But I also received Medusa, uh, Medusa being a synthesizer that Polyended did with Dreadbox a Greek synthesizer manufacturer, some two years before that, you know? And there, it turned out that the MCU, so this kind of integrated system uh, on a chip that is used by the synthesizer, wasn't really that heavily used because a lot of the sound generation was from actual analog circuits. So it was an analog digital synthesizer. Mm. So after talking to the owner of the company, I just convinced him that, like, hey, we could actually 
pretty much add FM synthesis to this device. Like it would be absolutely possible to, you know, still fit in this CPU on something that sounds much richer, right? Essentially adding a new mode of operation to an already existing product. And this ended up happening. Like after, well, two months, well, maybe three months of work, I don't remember at, uh, at this point exactly, but, you know, kind of this time frame, like we released like Medusa 4.0, like an entire big upgrade of the firmware, which added FM synthesis. And like, for me, the most wonderful thing that I could imagine from this was that some of the musicians I actually know and admire, for example, like Eraldo Bernocchi, who worked with Brian Eno and Harold Bad, like some of the kind of giants of ambient music actually use this new mode of the synthesizer and just contacted me and said like, hey, this is wonderful. This is great. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, like for me, that was like this biggest valuation because like true artists actually use your tool, you know, like that, that, that was pretty cool. Yeah, I think that's amazing. Like I thought that when you mentioned kind of diving into C++ there and how that on a an actual like embedded machine, how it would need to be a narrowed version I had a recent conversation with Scott Shawcroft about CircuitPython. Yep. And I felt like in some ways that kind of felt a little similar in some ways. Like he finds it very joyful to work inside of and yet it still feels like Python. And I'm wondering if that's kind of somewhat of a similar experience. There's like a little less overhead and you're you're really focused on what this hardware does and maybe not, you know, like, okay, I need to think about <laughs> all the other types of things in the, the standard library or beyond. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the, the nice thing is that really, you know, the device end to end, like there is no operating system, right? Like you really know everything about its ins and outs. Like the software that you're writing is what is being started when the device is being turned on and it controls everything. Uh, this is obviously sometimes, you know, just annoying because you have to uh, program everything. And since this is very low level, there's literally no task management. Like there is no task preemption, like nothing. Like you, you only have interrupts. So it's very low level. But at the same time, like that allows you to just focus on the one thing that the device does uh, without having to think, for example, like, you know, like any change that we do to see Python, you have to really think like, oh, will this work on Windows as well? Like me being a Mac OS developer, like yeah. you have to still look at the CI on, on the Windows end on whatnot. Very often Linux would, you know, have some additional APIs that we would want to add. So we would do that, but you need to kind of, you know, configure them in such a way where other operating systems are still functional. Very often, um, FreeBSD would find uh, race conditions in our code, for example, in async IO or in multiprocessing, because its concurrency model like, is different than Lin uh, Linux's. So all of this is great, but this you know, creates a big complication in sometimes even small changes. In embedded programming, there's none of that. Like you control everything and, you know, like that, that is at the same time a big responsibility, but also a big freedom because you really are able, kind of like with Commodore 64 back in the day, to understand like it from the start to finish. Yeah, I, I think this is going to be a, an ongoing uh, theme today <laughs> with talking about the, the things that you're having to work through to kind of continue a little bit like you. You had started the FM experiment in Python and then did your work with the Medusa. And then was it much different translating that back into your conference talk? 
The nice thing about using Python at first was that the very complex thing about FM synthesis is, is actually making all those, you know, waveforms when they are actually modulating each other sound like the thing that you want to reproduce. So the DX7 synthesizer, right? Mm -hmm. Thanks to doing this originally in Python, it, it was a very easy feedback loop for me, a very comfortable feedback loop where I kind of dialed in the way where, uh, you know, all those essentially arrays of numbers have to interact with one another. And by the time I got to the C++ end of things, it was just a matter of translating this now to C++. Yeah. It turns out that even though Python was able to just pure Python generate some of the sound like with actually like some polyphony already for me, when I wanted to use my Python grade uh, synthesizer to actually record some music, I ended up accelerating it with Cython so that I could bump up the number of voices that we can actually hear at the same time we can uh, play at the same time and I, I was able to do like you know fourth fold and performance gain by just moving a, a small part of the algorithm to cython and this movement actually thinking about like how will this work now on this end made made it very easy for me later to just kind of mentally map like oh now i'm in c++ so we're, we're just going to do the same thing. And, and it pretty much, you know, pretty much worked. Like uh, the biggest difference was that the embedded system has very little memory. And I, and I really mean like tiny amounts of memory. There's literally 64 kilobytes of memory that we had there uh, to use for like essentially everything uh, for, for like for like all, all of the code right and 256 kilobytes for the memory so all the waveforms that you have you know all your data structures and everything like 256 kilos is is all you got and that includes all the sequencing you know all the bitmaps of your you know kind of icons on the screens there are two screens on on the medusa so there was quite a bit of kind of code golf to actually fit this in the memory of the device. But that was the biggest challenge. The algorithm uh, was pretty much, you know, just rewritten, well, like rewritten or like copied one-to-one -one from my Python version to the C++ version, and it just worked. This is where Python excels. Like it, it really lets you think about, you know, like what is it that I'm trying to do? So with that out of the way, it, it was much easier than it would have been if I started in C++ from the get-go. That's cool. That's kind of been a bit of a theme lately uh, of talking to different developers and you know, reasons that they really like Python is that you can get those ideas kind of together and, and structured. And then, you know, in the case of moving it to like an embedded thing or enlarging it into some other kind of stuff, or, you know, in your case, translating it to a different language and onto a different box. Um, that sounds great. Yeah, I, I enjoyed working on it a lot because, you know, kind of for most of my career, the thing that I worked on was maybe outputting something on a text console. So there was very little in terms of kind of user interaction. Like most of the software I ever written was, you know, kind of if it wasn't CLI tooling, it was literally some server grade, something like in the middle of a larger system that you only interacted with by looking at logs. Like, did you have many errors or 
or, or just a few, you know? Uh, and, and now suddenly you are programming a device that is very, very tangible, right? Like it has yeah. pads that you really play on and it has like all those knobs and, uh, you know, faders and, you know, musicians actually use it as a musical instrument, right? Like in real time, it really needs to kind of be something else. It, it, it has a totally different feeling, like 180 degrees. And it was super pleasurable actually making something like this work because you can really feel and feel it and touch it. You can really easily show it to somebody, say, hey, I, I made this, right? <laughs> yeah. It's very hard for somebody like us, like, you know, to show off some of your backend system that works somewhere in AWS or wherever, right? Like, you know, how do you, how do you explain this to your family, right? Like, how do you, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, and with a musical instrument, like, you know, I showed it to my dad and, and, you know, he immediately got it. He was like, oh yeah, I, I, I get what you're trying to do. Like, it sounds like Madonna. I'm like, exactly. Yes. That's, that's, <laughs> that's it, you know? So yeah, yeah. That, that was pretty cool. It makes me think of like the original like Atari 2600 programmers like literally like not getting much credit so they would like hide things as easter eggs that I could see like people in like servers like you know like, <laughs> yeah. like leaving these little comments in there. <laughs> yeah, so, HTTP headers and so on, right? Yeah. <laughs> to kind of pivot into talking about the developer and residence roles, congratulations on that. No, thank you very much. It's a dream come true. Maybe we could start here why did you want the role? I, I didn't originally. Well, I mean, okay. <laughs> I mean, I did, right? Like, I literally had, like, talks about the fact that, you know, the Python Software Foundation should also fund the development of Python because it's the Python Software Foundation. And many of the sponsors of the foundation think that when they are sponsoring it, uh, they will have positive influence on the future of the language. And even before the, the role, like that was true, right? Because the PSF uh, protects the trademark and it was paying for the infrastructure, uh, a big cost of which is PyPI. And without PyPI, would there be Python? Like, well, doubtful, right? So yeah. all, all of this is important. But the missing piece was actually sponsoring core development. And I've been at this problem for quite a while, actually. Back in 2016, I ended up organizing the first uh, core sprint, like a seven-day event only for core developers where we could actually meet in person and develop the next version of Python. The first one at the Facebook campus in Menlo Park uh, was shortly before the release of Python 3.6 beta. And beta Beta is the feature freeze, right? So uh, it was very important for us to finish yet unfinished features so that they could actually be released as Python 3.6. And I think that to this day still, this has been the most productive week in the project's history in terms of merged comets and in terms of uh, finished peps and actual closed features, which is one of the reasons, like, I don't want to kind of, you know, overblow my my kind of role in this, but that's one of the reasons why Python 3.6 was such a leap from Python 3.5. It's still now a quite popular Python version because it, it, was a, it was a good release, actually. So I've been at this, uh, you know, that we should, you know, sponsor Python to be 
also developed by the PSF. And in fact, the PSF did sponsor uh, sprints in 2016 and since. If it weren't for the pandemic, it would probably be doing that yet still. But since 2020, we had to move to core sprints that are online. And this year, we're going to have that another time. And I'm going to be helping with this, like, well, in a quite a different role right now. So I very deeply believe that there is a big difference between a hobbyist project where you can, you know, spend a little bit of your time here and there and a project that is ran like day in, day out for eight hours a day by a bunch of uh, developers and actually kind of maintained in this well, full-time manner, right? Like you can see how a new programming languages sprung up in the past 15 years and essentially, you know, overtook Python in terms of, well, developer efficiency and in, ter- in terms of just velocity of uh, releasing new features. However, the big difference is that they are mostly controlled by either single corporations or by groups of corporations. Uh, So it's a much different model for funding. So I've been kind of whining about the fact that, you know, yes, the model is different, but we still should be having somebody who is helping uh, other core developers who are not full-time, so they cannot spend the same number of hours on, I don't know, untangling a merge conflict or fixing some CI problem that is not actually their thing, but it simply is read on their particular pull request and so on and so on. So I I did that for quite a few years. So it turns out, you know, I I learned this early this year that, well, uh, now Google is sponsoring a first developer in residence position for CPython. I was very happy to hear this. And uh, a bunch of people asked me like, hey, like, so will you apply for this? And I was kind of, you know, wary and terrified at first because I understood that, well, first of all, I've been I've been asking for this a lot. So, you know, maybe possibly I should also be the one that says like, hey, like I'm going to now, well, put my money where my mouth is and actually apply, right? Like, you know, it it wasn't at all sure who is going to get this uh, role, but at least I should apply. But at the same time, I felt like, you know what? Like now I'm living in this house in Poland, well, quite a middle of nowhere for most of my friends from the US and Berlin and, and whatever. But, a comfortable life, you know, like I have everything that I need uh, to kind of, you know, keep my family uh, secure and healthy. Maybe there are other core developers who need this funding, who need that money more, right? So I was, I was quite worried that, well, I don't want to take this away from somebody who might need it more. Uh, at the same time, I had a few talks with other core developers about this, and they let me know that, you know, this might be true or not, but this is not for you to decide, but to the steering council and the PSF actually deciding who is going to get that role. So this is not your responsibility. Don't worry about it. Yeah. But what we need to worry about is that the person who is going to get that role uh, has a decent chance of showing that this kind of role makes sense, right? But it, it pays to sponsor this for the next year because this is for now a contract for 12 months. So in the end, I thought like, you know, yeah, like 
would I want to do this? Yes, that's my dream job. <laughs> like I've been yeah. doing this as as fun, as a hobby, you know, kind of in bursts of activity. I was never very regular in my contributions, but that's mostly because I was in my job, right? So I decided, yes, like I really want to be part of this, at least, you know, to kind of put my resume there, there to write this cover letter, which was probably the first one in 10 years I had to write, you know, and in the end, there was a round of uh, interviews that I had with the PSIF and the steering council. I hear a bunch of other people as well, uh, and they ended up choosing me, which was wonderful news, both because I believe this is important for Python. I wrote it on my blog, but also because, and I, I'm pretty open about this, like Google made a wonderful, wonderful setup for this, which means that both it pays Bay Area grade money for this role, which is amazing. There is no kind of lo localization, right? Like which which many companies do, right? Uh, where oh, you're in Poland, so we're going to pay you Polish rates. Like no, actually, this pays like you know like best of business grades for this. Most of all, this this really is something that I. I would do for free, right? Like maybe not so regularly, but it's it's really, well, just spending time with core devs who I've known for more than a decade right now. And it, it can actually also make very positive impact on everybody. So I was I was very, very happy to, to, to get this opportunity. Oh, and another thing that I, I failed to mention before, like Google sponsors this but they never came with any demands, right? There is no list of, of features that they want us to implement. There is no list of bugs that they want us to prioritize. It was it was a very clean cut sponsorship. Like, oh, it, the project needs it. You know, we're, we're going to put uh, some funds there. Just, you know, use them the best you can. And I found this like the best possible model I would uh, come up myself with you know because you know this really is how i would envision large users of python you know paying back for the value that they're already getting yeah that's great this podcast is sponsored by datastax astra db astra db is built on apache cassandra and is now made easy in the cloud create a free cassandra database in minutes for global scale on a startup budget with 40 gigabytes of storage free every month. Visit us at astra.dev slash Python. That's A-S-T-R-A dot D-E-V slash Python. There's a kind of a couple different directions to kind of go from here, but I, I thought maybe we could talk about, In you, you have this great blog post that I'll link to that is titled, I am the new CPython developer in residence. And it has a lot of the details there that can kind of flesh out some of the stuff. But I thought we could talk about like what were some of the expected responsibilities that someone who would be in this role would follow. Ever since writing this blog post, which was uh, obviously like an announcement of like, hey, I'm going to be doing this from now on. Now we're almost two months in. So I already kind of have a, a little better view of uh, what the ideas were versus what the reality of it is. Yeah. So there's obviously endless ideas of how you can use a developer in residence. Like it is probably very good for me to not be a native speaker because I only after the fact learned the kind of 
you know, the second meaning, the deeper meaning of like what the inner residence part means, you know, kind of like with, with artists on, you know, courts of rich mm. people where like, oh yeah, there's an artist in residence, right? Like this, this sort of thing. Interesting history. <laughs> I, I never thought about it like this. I just thought, you know, it's it's a name of a role like any other, like the senior developer or whatever else you can have. Like on a, now, now senior is no longer that popular. I guess everybody wants to be a principal right now. Anyway, like I, I didn't I, I didn't give give it two thoughts. But you can you can really use that developer like this. You know, maybe just leave this wonderful artist. To himself and maybe he'll come up with the removal of the gill or maybe he'll make the packaging story 100 times better or whatever like you know y- y- you, you can have dreams like this but i just looked at what what are the people who are already working on python what are they doing and what are the biggest pain points there and it turned out that well our, possibly our biggest pain, pain point right now is that we are getting tens tens of pull requests uh, per day, yeah, right? And they pile up and pile up and there's not enough people to actually review them all. Some of them obviously need fixes to be mergeable. Some of them are downright bad ideas. They should be rejected. But some of them are quite ready. They just wait for somebody to look at them and decide, okay, this is worth the risk because every change is a risk. Like it's a responsibility to merge something, obviously. But there's not enough reviewers. So I thought, you know, like, instead of being this, you know, wannabe Leonardo da Vinci, like what you should be (laughs) really is this kind of PR janitor, which is this person that makes sure that, uh, you know, the, uh, the pipes are flowing, like everything is good. You know, there's electricity and the walls are clean and, you know, everybody who is doing the real work ha- is able to do their best job. So this is what I, my original idea was. Obviously, the, you know, steering council had this, you know, kind of realization that like, hey, but you can really lose a lot of time doing something that doesn't really pay off that well because it's hard to say where the biggest needs are right now. So apart from just blindly, you know, merging pull requests, reviewing pull requests, I'm also looking into where the most energy of the project is going into. So there's a bunch of things that I'm I, I, I'm actually at the moment putting into a blog post about like, hey, these are the libraries that see the most activity. These are the files that we end up changing all the time. Or these are the pull requests for files that almost never get merged because nobody really looks at them. Uh, nobody really feels like they are a maintainer of this part of Python. What you need to understand is like Python is over a million lines of code right now. Half of this is C, half of this is Python. So it's kind of a myth that everybody knows everything about Python when they're contributing. Like you, you, you know some something about like the overall architecture and some parts better than others, but there are going to be large parts of Python that you never touch. Like you're going to see them for the first time when you see a pull request uh, to that part of Python. That's true for me a lot. In any case... This is how I thought about the project, you know, about the role, about the contract for uh, 12 months. Like, make sure you're actually accelerating 
the experience of existing contributors. And by this, I not only mean core devs, but also the people who come with, you know, kind of good intentions trying to fix a thing that affects them personally, right? Because this is how I started contributing myself back in 2009. Something in config parser didn't work for me, so I just reported a bug and then nothing happened to it. So I actually made a patch and just complained on IRC that, hey, look, like, this is a fix, but it doesn't work for me and I need it to be fixed at some point. So a lot of people also have the same urge that they want Python to be better. They want to contribute and then they do. And the bug that they reported is never replied to or the pull request is waiting for long enough that it's now stale and it cannot really be easily merged, even if we decided that it's worth merging. So obviously a single person like me like cannot fix the entire issue. Like There's far too many pull requests right now, but at least we can try to make this better. And I've been, I've been at it ever since. I was wondering about, as a person who has been kind of watching on the sidelines a little bit, trying to see what's happening and trying to educate myself also partly in the lead up to Python 3.10 and reading like the release notes, I started to see some terminology that I wanted to maybe define for the audience with your help. Yeah. And the first one was this, that you mentioned that there's like bugs plus then there's pull requests and they're kind of separate channels, at least again, me looking on the outside the ones being defined as BPO. And I was like, what does that stand for? And then I'm like, oh, okay. Is it just literally bugs.python.org and then an issue number? Uh, yes. So uh, I, what you need to understand is that Python is old in yeah. computer years, right? Like when it was first released in uh, 1990, uh, it was just a tarball sent to a news group. So Ever since, like when the project was now developed in the open, like it used some form of version control. And those version control systems changed multiple times, right? Like first to SVN, then to Mercurial, and finally now to GitHub. Uh, well, to Git using GitHub. It wasn't, by the way, like super clear, like if we're going to end up on GitHub, even if we end up using uh, Git. So all of those were pretty important project decisions. And the bug tracker that we uh, had developed for the project, like was um, part of it for a long, long while. Like it started when we migrated from SourceForge, uh, so from SV, so from SVN, right? Like, still, you have some issues in bugspython.org that have unnaturally high numbers, right? So, like now, uh, the uh, actual issues that you open in the bug tracker are like in their forty-five hundred, uh, forty-five thousands but there are ones that are like over a millions like what is that like well those are the ones that we imported from sourceforge like mm. way back when right like 20 years back so ever since we had this bug tracker and now that we have github it is kind of weird sometimes that github is a kind of a viral system right like it, it really invites you to do everything on github so when you have pull requests it's very easy to just put comments there and just keep the conversation going on the pull request alone uh, so in the end what we want to do is we want to migrate again from bugspython.org to use github issues right like like as many other big modern projects however this is going to be a big migration like it already takes a long while uh, i believe ezio melody is now like you know 
quite uh, busy actually trying out migration scripts that will enable us to still keep issues that we have in bugspython.org today alongside with the comments that were made historically on those issues to actually have all this in GitHub. So that's going to be very, very good for, you know, the, the kind of developer experience, uh, including the so-called drive-by developers, right? So somebody who just notices a typo and they're like, oh, I, I can just... yeah." fix that from the GitHub UI, right? Because now you don't even have to have a checkout. You can just do it straight from the website. So this is be, this is going to become much easier. But today, well, we still have bugspython.org, so BPO, and they have their own numbering of issues. It's a system for which you need a separate account. It, it's got a timeless UI, let's call it that. <laughs> and, you know, like it's, 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 it's got its nice parts where the search is super powerful because we have very many fields that can slice and dice issues however you like. But at the same time, it's kind of intimidating for many people. So yeah, we're going to be moving to GitHub issues. I hope soon it's going to make my job easier. But when that's going to be, well, that's that's a little bit outside of my jurisdiction. Like I'm I'm the user of that workflow. I'm not uh, working towards changing it. Okay. And so those are literally, you know, things that people have found that are uh, potentially they are including a fix with it, but in, in many cases, they're just sort of reporting it as a as a bug. And that's a very different process than someone coming into GitHub and actually creating a full-on pull request if people aren't familiar with that. Yeah, so like w- once we're migrated, like it's going to be the difference between choosing the issues tab versus the pull request tab. Like obviously okay. for the for the latter, you're going to need some code that you're going to change. Currently, if you want to only report a problem that you're seeing, like well, you should go to BPO to bugspython.org, log in. Right? Otherwise, you cannot really submit anything. And then, you know, you just fill out the form. The form is pretty verbose. It asks you a lot of questions. But you can put a lot of information already there. And a lot of people are doing this. Um, so, so yeah, like it's it's our, well, issue gathering system. It's, it's pretty great to also track like how the discussions on an issue were, you know, taking place. However, currently, this is already, you know, one foot in GitHub, because as I said, it's very easy, it's very tempting to just keep, uh, you know, continue the discussion on GitHub already, if you're already there on a pull request, because it's simply a very nice to use UI. It's, it's you know, very inviting, it's, uh, you know, very rich, like supports markdown and whatnot, you know, it's, it's uh, you, you often just forget to come back to bugspython.org, where historically we would want all um, conversations leading to a change to happen, right? Because it's also the history of the project, right? It's important. Okay. Now this is sort of halfway between uh, GitHub or BPO already. So it just makes sense to just move everything to GitHub so that we have it all in one place. Do you, I think you were kind of hinting at this idea that maybe there could be stronger forms of like, I don't know, I'm going to call it generically metadata about the PRs that are being submitted so that they can kind of be aggregated in certain ways or looked at in certain ways. Are, are there things that you, you see potentially not right now, but like future wise that could improve that process? 
This is actually, from what I'm hearing, one of the challenges of the migration, where some of the fields just don't map to functionality that GitHub has. So we're going to have to uh, just drop some information in this uh, normalized way that is, you know, some data set because it's a combo box or whatever, or a special field for some information. And during the migration, we will only be able to put it either as a label which is not exactly the same thing, or as just text in the original reported issue. So some some data like we, we won't be able to use anymore in such an easy way as we were before. The the obvious question is like, is that a deal breaker? I believe mm. it isn't, because many of those fields uh, were kind of low quality to begin with because it's humans who fill them out, right? If you provide too many fields, <laughs> yeah. it's only natural that some of those are never going to be filled or at least not regularly enough to to depend on them. Like just, just to give you an example, like if I'm closing an issue right now on bugspython.org, there's three separate fields I need to look at, right? Because there's the state of the issue. So is it open? Is it closed? Is it pending? There's a resolution. So you need to actually fill whether it was fixed or won't fix or rejected or whatever else. And there is still a third field, which is what is the stage of this issue? Like, is it uh, waiting for a patch is uh, a patch under review or is it resolved so just the simple act of closing an issue like makes you look at three fields it's a, wow. a little too verbose to my taste uh, i believe that you know maybe this has some marginal use sometime but most of the time like you can infer for example like the stage of a given issue just looking at whether there are open pull requests on it you know like how's the discussion there and whatnot and whatnot but without all this kind of automation now I need to look at three fields every time I close an issue and I close like 15 of them a week. So, you know, like not the end of the world. I won't be complaining. Now being paid uh, for this like makes me really, really relaxed about a lot of this <laughs> manual work. It's, it's, it's sure. okay, right? It's, it's, a, it's part of your job. But not having to do that will just make it faster for me to, to, to plow through uh, the existing uh, issues that are reported. So it's a matter of kind of UX, right? Like, you know, kind of can you make the developer's life easier easier by just streamlining how the issues are being, you know, worked, well, like flowed through work, right? Because obviously there is some workflow through every issue. It's being opened by somebody. We need to look at it, decide that, oh, it needs a patch. Somebody writes a patch, we review it and we either merge it and close the issue or uh, we reject it because we decide, oh, it's not worth it for reason X or Y and also close it. But it's, it's a different kind of closing. Yeah, like I, I don't want to ramble too much about this, but you know. No, no, I, I think that it's interesting because you're now that you're in this role and there's a sort of a person, you know, in in the seat, if you will, like in front of this stuff. I would imagine that that person would realize that okay, there's a whole bunch of different optimizations that could happen to this process. That you know, again, people that only contribute when they can. It, uh, they're not going to see it. And and also the person who's touching things all the time is probably going to have a, a different idea of like, wow, this could be more efficient. I'm, I keep repeating these things. So oh, yeah. All that makes a lot of sense to me. 
Of course, like one one thing that I decided not to do is to kind of you know like have too many opinions too early, right? Because obviously sure. I I was a drive-by contributor like for years and years, like there's a bunch of peps in my name, but that that was over like ten years, right? And now I'm sitting like in, in you know like uh in front of the computer eight hours a day, like looking at the pull requests, coding myself. Uh, obviously, I kind of more kind of steer towards uh reviewing others changes than writing my own because it's just it just takes so much time to come up with a sensible change you know so in that same time that i write a single change myself i can probably review like three uh other like or or, or more actually so it's just it's just better for the project to just accelerate others than to just work on your fun thing of the day in any case now doing this i would you know, sometimes be tempted to say, hey, I personally would like it if this worked like this, right? Yeah. But like, am I in any way, you know, better informed about those things? Like, I'm not sure yet, right? Because I I only (laughs) ever started to do this day in, day out, like in July. So I'm giving myself some time to decide whether parts of our bigger workflow make sense or not, because, you know, if they were really so unworkable for hobbyists, like they would probably already like do something about this. What I am working on uh, though is, for example, addressing breakage of uh, bots. Where if if uh, the bots that help us, uh, you know, merge pull requests faster, generate, you know, backboards to different branches, if for some reason they're offline or they're not doing their job or uh, they air out, like everybody is slowed down. So now having somebody doing this full-time allows that somebody to spend time on fixing the problem, right? Because obviously, if, if, if this is your hobby, you don't want to fix infrastructure for the project. You want to work on your hobby feature, right? That, that, right. that, that, that you want to see finished. Um, this is different for me now. So yeah, like I've, I've done some changes to the uh, bots. You know, I, I'm now kind of uh, able to see the exceptions that we are getting like occasionally on them and improve on that and so on and so on. So definitely, oh, and for example, build bots, right? Like if, if I see that some build bot is dead and it might be for many reasons, like for example, just like w- w- the other day, there, there was some Windows build bot which started airing out with like really weird like failures of uh, our uh, unit tests and what ended up being the root cause of this was that some windows update needed user interaction on that particular build bot and if it didn't get it for a long long while it just hogged all the uh, cpu power that was on that particular uh, machine so it ended up just timing out things that never timed out before. Hmm. So I just, you know, kind of saw this happening, uh, reported this in great detail to the owner of that build bot, and they were able to just fix it very quickly. Or, for example, I would report that some build bot that we have marked as stable, so it influences uh you know, releases of Python, like is not really stable for, for a reason or another. And we would decide like, oh, like, is this something that we can improve or should that build bot be excluded from this set? Because obviously you cannot release Python when you when the key build bots are red. But what does that mean? Like, is, is that build bot simply flaky because it's running on some, you know, m- shared micro instance somewhere or some unstable operating system? 
or is this showing an actual issue that we uh, keep having? One of those issues that I kind of feel like I'm going to have to tackle at some point is that AsyncIO on Windows, and I don't mean uh, with also Windows subsystem for Linux, but actual Windows, ends up being a little race condition-y on our unit tests. So every now and again, like we would have a spurious failure uh, on Windows just because of that. Like, and you know, we we need to go ahead and fix this. Uh, so I already did get a Windows 10 install from Microsoft. I already have this set up for me and I'm going to be looking into this in, in the coming weeks. So hopefully we can fix this problem once and for all because it upsets our contributors every now and again when, you know, a change that is totally unrelated to AsyncIO would some, somehow fail or AsyncIO tests on Windows. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another RealPython video course. If you wanted to learn more about speech recognition or wanted to add those type of features to your projects, I think you'll get a lot out of this course. It's titled Speech Recognition with Python. The course is based on a RealPython article by David Amos. And in the course, instructor Darren Jones takes you through how speech recognition works, what speech recognition packages are available on PyPI, how to install and use the Speech Recognition Package, a full-featured and straightforward Python speech recognition library, and then how to work with input from a microphone or from sound files. And in the end, you also get the experience of creating a guess-the-word game to learn how to put it all together. And like all the video courses on RealPython, the course is broken into easily consumable sections, plus you get additional resources and code examples for the techniques shown. And... All of our course lessons have a transcript, including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the Enhanced Search tool on realpython.com. You, you mentioned this idea of like watching for patterns and directions that you feel the, the language is headed in. I, I know that it's only two months in, and that you were saying that you would probably gather those things and report on them later. Are there some that you could speak to now? One thing that I was pretty surprised by is how um, how many changes we're doing to very low level parts of the language. So, like mm. you would expect that you know, kind of the uh, eval loop. Like we're not really touching that often. Right? Like, and it turns out that's one of the most popular files that we are touching. Um, it, it's changing, like you know, pretty much like. It's, it's in the top 10 files that we touch right now. So I, I was super surprised by this. There's also a lot of churn that was fixed by having automation in the form of argument clinic, which allows us to automate generating nice doc strings and argument parsing for C modules that includes parts of C Python itself. Um, that, that was work by Larry Hastings. And at the time, it was a little controversial because it introduced this notion of like, oh, this is no longer pure C code. Now it's C code like sprinkled with this auto-generated parts. Like this ends up actually saving a lot of time because a lot of changes that we're seeing are the changes done by Argument Clinic. Hmm. And a, a lot of interesting things like are around uh, kind of trends where you see that somebody suddenly starts being interested in typing 
and there's a flurry of activity on typing, whereas before you had like very little for a month, right? And like currently, for example, like we're seeing a lot of uh, new interest in improving unit test, right? It's an ancient library for unit testing, right? Like you know, it's uh, it's it's been mature for decades now. But well, now like there's a lot of interest in actually um, making it better. So there's a flurry of activity right in there in that package. So yeah, like the, the blog post will go over uh, some of those things. Uh, also touching on a pep that uh, Christian Hymas wrote uh, around dead batteries. Like what that pep is arguing for is that we should remove a bunch of things from the standard library that nobody is really maintaining. Right, like what that means is, there are files there. You might import them. Some of them are even documented. But uh, well, we really give no guarantee that this will do anything useful for you. Or for years and years, there have been better equivalents on PyPI that the community moved towards. So Christian lists a lot of libraries in that particular pep. And I looked uh, and kind of cross-checked a bunch of those, like whether there's some activity there. Like surprisingly, there, there is activity almost in every file that we have. Like it's not like we're not touching files at all. But some of them really are sweeping changes where somebody would go through the entire code base with a tool that, for example, allows you to find non-matching parentheses, like including doc strings and, you know, like other places that aren't really compiled by a compiler. And, and you know, like since it's a code mod over this entire repository, it would also touch files that otherwise wouldn't see many changes. But sometimes it's, for example, a change in CAPI or how Python internally is working kind of forces our hand and we have to also change some particular standard library file to still work. So essentially proving the point of Christian that even libraries that don't have a maintainer still require maintenance of the entire team. So yeah, like some of those details are still pending. I still have to be sure that what I'm talking about like really is, you know, like the, da- the data is all correct and whatnot. Yeah. I already, for example, decided that, you know, the history of the project is starting from like, you know, 1989, first published in 1990, but we really don't need to go that far. Like we, like we are going as far as GitHub pull requests, right? Like that history is already uh, multiple years in the making. And, you know, knowing historically that there have been a lot of activity between Python 2 and Python 3 when we were uh, splitting the branches there, a lot of uh, backports, you know, here and forth. Like that's historically interesting, but not interesting in the sense of what we should be doing right now. Like now, the current data is on GitHub. Uh, This is how we're contributing to Python. Pretty much even if you have right access to the repository, like nobody pushes to the repository directly, everybody goes through pull requests. So this is a very good lens into our activity right now. One of the things I I wondered about, and you kind of mentioned this on your interview with uh, Talk Python with Michael Kennedy, you were talking about kind of keeping up with the changes and, and, and so forth. And I don't, I don't need to rehash that much, but what I wanted to do is ask a question that's kind of just a, a, about it in general. Do you feel that now that there's someone is in this position of reviewing those things that the traffic has amplified? Well, 
Unfortunately, like I can only talk about correlation and not exactly causation because at the exact time where I started the work, also some increased activity could be seen from, for example, the team that Guido is working uh, in right Uh. now at Microsoft, uh, where um, Mark Shannon, Eric Catriel, and Eric Snow are working on Python performance. Like they were actually joined recently by Pablo Galindo Salgado as well, who uh, gets part of his like, you know, full-time job at Bloomberg to work on Python performance right now. So that's wonderful to know. And also you can clearly see this in the kind of rising amount of changes yeah. that we're having uh, right now just from those uh, five people alone. Uh, okay. but, <laughs> but yeah, but, but, but there's obviously more, more changes from uh, others. Like it's wonderful to see that, that there are just new contributors like popping up, you know, essentially like from my perspective out of nowhere but they're <laughs> sticking to to it right so it's yeah. not like they made a change that they wanted and went away no like they're at, they're at it they're like submitting change after change after change kind of proving my point from the blog post that i wrote initially that a good first impression where your, your change is getting reviewed and it's getting merged like inspires you to do more of it right so there's a lot of that like i have some some uh, thing to do with this but mostly not because it's it's a living project right like i started in july many of those contributors started er- earlier on so they were already invited contribute by others I now simply, you know, am one of those who review uh, those things well day in, day out. I have to admit that, you know, there was a week where I tried to kind of, you know, 40 hours per week be damned. Like, let's, let's see how many pull requests I can actually land in one week. You know, kind of let's, 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 let's try to just force it and just see how much is this kind of physically possible for a single person. Obviously, like making this reasonable in terms of well, software quality, right? It's not about how fast you can press the uh, green button. It's it's really about reviewing it and making sure that this is a change that we should be having and in how many branches and whatnot, right? Like, so it's, it, it, there's an entire ordeal here. And and <laughs> yeah. it turned out to be just shy of a hundred, right? You know, and, and that's not something I can, you know, kind of... yeah. Uh, well, promised to do every week. That was really a lot. And the annoying part about this is that it, it let me fall by like 30 something pull requests from the number we had before to just reach like just a little below 1400. Like I was like very kind of proud of this. Like, oh yeah, like this is clearly a trend down. And by the time I woke up on a Saturday after this, you know, marathon, the number was already back up in the 1400s because you yeah. know m- more people started you know putting more changes in so it is not possible for a single person to get that number to zero i like guess it's, it's simply too too big of a project seeing too many changes from too many actors at this point which kind of suggests that maybe we should have more people uh like me um, yeah. who could spend more time on this regularly just to ensure that the well pipeline that we have right now like the backlog kind of goes down to zero some of the pull requests could really be just closed in bulk at this point there's many that have merge conflicts uh, or were outdated in other ways for example the 
issue on BPO is already closed, but the pull request stayed open for whatever reason. Uh, so there's a num- th- th- there's some cleanup uh, of this sort I could also do. And with the data I'm gathering right now, like I'll be able to do that, you know, still this year. But I didn't want to kind of start with 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 this sort of thing, right? Because I really wanted to, yeah, to to have like a human eye on those issues, right? Sometimes it's really just pinging somebody, even from three years back, like in saying, like, "Hey, you're still interested in, in in getting this in." And more often than not, people are like, "Oh yeah, why not?" You know, let me just split this into smaller things for you, so it's easier to review. I've had like very good experience like that, like in August, where big parts of our uh, TK Inter documentation were essentially rewritten because somebody really believed that you know some improvements are necessary there was a very nice pull requests uh, pull request from uh, 2019 about this but it no longer merged it was a big change it was very hard to actually you know bring this in um but that person was kind enough to not only revive that pull request but to split it in parts that were trivial for me to pull into maintenance branches as well okay so, so yeah, like we're going to get our act together with the pull requests, but it's going to take more than just me and it's going to take quite a while. Yeah. I thought about that. Like you kind of mentioned that, you know, in the other interview also, um, which I'll, I'll link to, but I was thinking about that. I mean, obviously there would be the need to kind of figure out like, okay, this is successful. This is working. And, and you're definitely working very hard on that. But along with that, there would need to be the, you know, the additional funding to, to make that happen. My question though, is if you were now with a little more time in the chair, looking at this, what would be things that you would look for in candidates that you would want to have in these roles? Like what would be things that would be helpful, you know, to you, like the skills or, or, uh, you know, different kinds of, backgrounds that would help you move forward in this role that those candidates would have? So I, I, I don't feel like I'm necessarily qualified to, to, to you know, well, specify who, who that should be or like, doing like well, even make, make decisions on, you know, kind of who, who the perfect candidate for this is. Uh, in my opinion, this is a role where you have like tremendous well like ability to just break everything like you can just essentially make the lives of everybody else super miserable if you're a little too eager uh merging changes sure or you can essentially stop any work of anybody by just merging the wrong change and essentially making like some gigantic conflict or whatever else so like there are many ways to contribute to Python and there's very many ways to just be productive in this project, including for beginners. But this particular role, I would think somebody who is not a newcomer to see Python, and I really mean like the GitHub project, like that that would be best, right? Because you, you need to kind of know w- what you're getting into, right? Like how a change is actually made, but more importantly, like what are you changing, right? So somebody who already you know, has some understanding of CPython internals would be perfect. Like, you know, and, and frankly, you can get there pretty quickly right now because there's, you know, literally a book by Anthony Shaw that talks about CPython internals. Yep. <laughs> like, I, I've, I've read it. Uh, I, I had a copy myself. So it, it's, it's a great refresher. I, I've learned a bunch of things that I never looked into as well. So, you know, kind of um, worth having. 
But the thing is, you know, kind of with this kind of role, well, some previous experience with the project, I think, is kind of key, you know, uh, because simply I don't know how the future ones, if there are ever going to be ones like, you know, kind of all of this is in the air for me. And it's kind of, you know, one of the big motivators for me to really kind of try my best so that you, you kind of prove the, prove the value and everything. But at the same time, like the contract I have right now is for 12 months, right? It'll end on July 12th, 2022. And maybe that's going to be it. Like, if so, like, I'm pretty sure uh, so far, it's it's kind of wonderful for me and it's going to be, you know, keep being so. Uh, so it's probably going to be great even if it ends on that. Uh, I hope not, but you know, if it ends up being a 12-month contract, so be it. But if the next one, right, say for somebody else, would also be 12 months, then the question becomes, you know, how much of that are you, plan- are you planning to spend on bringing that person to speed, right? Uh, since 12 months is, is not really that long. Yeah. I was very surprised that, you know, just, just talking to you right now, like just realizing that, oh, uh, I need to uh, just, you know, uh, write my uh, third invoice next week. Like it's it's wow. Like that's that. It's been a while. Like it's I've been <laughs> doing this for a while now, and you know it doesn't feel like it. It feels like I just have begun. Yeah, and I guess to kind of change the question slightly, if there were the core role that you are in right now, could there be additional roles that would be sort of you know making a, a small team of it? Like what would be areas that those people could maybe help you or help the person who's oh, you know, doing that. Yeah. Yeah. So like if we had a- another person like me, like we would probably be working like I am now because likely in all likelihood, maybe I'm wrong, but in all likelihood, that person would be in North America, essentially meaning I'm asleep. That person is working and vice versa. Oh uh, yeah. Okay. So, you know, in, in, in that scenario, like th- there would be little change. Like uh, C Python is an amazing project for a remote worker like myself, because everything already happens through asynchronous communication methods. So there is a zero pressure to have, to be on zoom meetings and whatnot. Like it's, it's actually fantastic for this, but just having another person like this would probably not change uh, how I work, uh, you know, but if we had four people, and that would already be an entire team. Like our approach could be much different, right? Like at this point, it makes sense to essentially have a plan and just methodically, I don't know, get the backlog of our pull requests down to zero. Like literally you have this in your goal. Like I, I currently at this point cannot subscribe to a goal like this. It would be, right. you know, even, even if I did like all I could, probably unrealistic, right? Like to, uh, to promise such a thing. But in four people, totally realistic, like totally doable. Like you can actually bring this down. And at this point, like, because that would be obviously my first goal because like all, all those changes, we, we want to see them, you know, down. Like I remember this number used to be not 1400. It used to be under a thousand. And before that, it used to be under 400. Like it, it, it's not, it's not been like this for super long. Like, so we, I, I still see a future where <laughs> we are better off the backlog than we are now. But if you're already done with this, right, for people, you can spend, I don't know, six months on this and, and be done. Like, what else can you do now? Well, now having full-time core developers, you can actually start thinking about this much differently. You can start doing kind of 
bringing peps to some resolution. Like there are quite a number of peps which are kind of uh, hanging in limbo, right? There are drafts. Somebody wrote them and fought for them for a while. There were discussions on Python dev, but they have neither been rejected nor accepted, right? So we could essentially decide on those. There's a bunch of those. What we could also do is fix a number of non-fun issues in uh, some of the libraries that we have. Like I just mentioned, you know, some edge cases of AsyncIO on Windows, right? But like it goes kind of deeper than that. There's a number of changes that would be welcome, but nobody ever had the time to really kind of sit down and look through those things like from start to finish. Like one one small example is just like uh, PTI support, right? Like a PTY support. Yeah, so plenty of areas where we could make Python better for all our users in in places that are unlikely to be attractive for a volunteer to tackle. You see what I mean? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If people want to kind of follow along uh, on your your journey here, making these sort of weekly reports, and yep. I'll, I'll include a link to a couple of them. Is there... I noticed there wasn't like a direct link on your on your site except for the sort of the hashtag on the side. Yeah, so uh, like since they are just weekly reports, like um, some of them are more wordy than others. Yeah, I decided not to essentially make my blog entirely about that. Right. So yeah, no, you do lots of other stuff. <laughs> it, it, yeah, if if you're going through the hashtag, you're gonna get to them. But like otherwise, like they're they're not listed in like the latest programming posts I have. Like the posts are usually more kind of fine grained, like more hierarchy. Well, higher quality, let's say. But the weekly reports are weekly. You can essentially see a full list of them on Discourse, right? So discusspython.org, like in the commenters section, I always announce that there's a new report. Okay. Uh, so that's that's an easy way to see them. The hashtag actually on the uh, on the blog also has an atom link. So like if you're still using RSS for whatever reason, like you can subscribe to that. And okay. and just on on HTML, on the HTML side, there's there's a list of posts there. It's obviously gonna be update up to date all the time. So yeah, like I I don't even necessarily announce all those weekly reports on Twitter. Because they're weekly reports, it's kind of right, right. it's 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 it, it was very interesting for the the first three four ones, right? But at this point, there's a lot of rote there, right? So you know, kind of these are the issues I closed, these are the pull requests I closed, and I try to like not not manage to do this every every week, but try to also just put some highlights there. So like, oh, interesting things I tackled this week, yeah. But none of those are you know, groundbreaking blog posts for me in particular. So yeah, like if you're interested in them, totally read them. Uh, I'm very happy to answer any questions about uh, or the work I'm doing. And, you know, I'm very happy to hear any feedback about what you would like me to do differently. Or maybe you have a, a particular favorite issue you would like me to look at. Totally, let's do this. Yeah, like the blog, I think, is going to still have some larger blog posts every now and again. Just right now, I'm writing about this, like, hey, like, you know, what are all those people doing in the Python project? Like, essentially, you know, the, the rate of change in different parts of CPython. Yeah. No, that sounds totally interesting. I I was wondering of one other kind of question on on the idea of going through, you know, the backlog and queries. And, and I was wondering if you have been, I, I noticed a, a note about the SQLite data format, and I don't know if that was 
related in some ways to querying those databases and if they're like tools that you're working on or visualizations or other things that you you're thinking about that might help in this process of kind of you know just analyzing what's there and in in working through it yeah so like in in theory right like all of this data is already open open source right like it's already open because it's on github there's a public api yeah git repository like you can download it yourself and just analyze it whatever in, in whatever means but getting to a consistent state with this data is is a little is a little tricky like it takes takes some work uh, so since i already mm, did this like it just feels you know sensible to me to just um, publish this data alongside whatever particular highlights i'm going to have about the uh, about the data so that other people can also look at them uh, when i did this originally i created a bunch of data classes you know just mm, put them in a pickle on this essentially just using shelf because even though it's a toy for production use for me personally on my personal computer like that was the fewest number of lines I needed to have a reproducible, you know, like database of all the things I already downloaded from uh, GitHub and kind of scraped from the Git repo. But is that a perfect, you know, bundle for anybody to look at? Well, like, arguably not, because first of all, like, pickles between versions can be a little, you know, weird. Mm -hmm. And also that would tie the data to the uh, models you know, to the Python script that I used to to get the data from uh, the original sources. So instead, I thought, you know, uh, SQLite alongside uh, SQLite Utils and Dataset project by Simon Willison seems like the perfect thing to do, right? Like it's um, it's tabular, so some of the queries are a little awkward to do for hierarchical data. But that, other than that, you know, there's plenty of plugins for data sets where you can see data in a visual form. There's graphs that are going to be just drawn for you if you just, you know, click the right thing on the web UI. But SQLite is really kind of like JSON right now. It's it's universally understood, right? Like your watch and your fridge probably have some <laughs> SQLite yeah. database at this point, right? So it, it just seems like this Library of Congress compatible long-term storage solution. Like, you know, I, I should just put the SQLite file out there uh, and people can do whatever they want with it. Yeah, so like that, that, was, that was my line of thinking. Um, me, myself, using Dataset was uh, hit or miss. Like the tool is great, but some of the kind of more analytical queries really, really take ages to complete. That's kind of SQLite's thing. Even though, you know, kind of I spend a lot of time on like, oh, index this, maybe model the data a little differently or whatnot. So for some things that, you know, I have in the blog, like I, I essentially ended up just writing like, you know, custom 30, 40 line Python scripts just to have the data exactly as I like it. But, you know, like... Other than that, I think SQLite is going to be the most kind of reusable format. Even if somebody needs to write a Python script later to do something very weird with the data, SQLite is something that is literally built into the interpreter, right? So it's going to be very easy for somebody to use this information essentially in any programming language they want. Yeah, cool. Did we hit most of the things that you wanted to touch on? Yeah, I guess I guess this is still a role that is being shaped as we go. So like I, I want to stress that if anybody 
listening to this podcast like has uh, some feedback on like hey like you're not doing this thing which i think you should totally be doing or you're doing too much of this which i don't think you should be doing like just write me an email and write me on twitter just let me know uh we're all learning right like i do consider this a 12 month contract if it ends it ends but maybe hopefully it'll become a longer term uh, position for me and if so uh yes we need uh, to keep sponsors interested in this but also we need to make sure that there's value for you right so there's just one person doing this with essentially some level of management from the PSF but it's also pretty free form right there i'm not being micromanaged by anybody uh so how we think about the role and what it does in the future is pretty much you know what we decide is worth doing yeah that makes sense so i have these weekly questions i like to ask everybody and the first one was What's something that you're excited about in the world of Python? And could be event, book, package, what have you. So currently, this is the time of release of Python 3.10. And for me as the developer of Residence, this is going to be amazing because one more branch is going to be another bug fix branch, which changes the you know rate of change I can I can do for many pull requests uh, like in plus like it's going to be making my life much easier it's probably also an amazing relief to the new release manager uh, pablo because obviously the final version of 310 is a big event yeah uh, so there's a number of nice changes there in that particular version of python it's a big release there's the match statement which some people are afraid of some people are excited by i think it's gonna go very similar to how uh, the assignment expressions went so yeah there might be some controversy but after that blows over you're gonna see that this is something that has very specialized use cases. But when you have one of those, it's it's a magnificent upgrade over what we had before. There's plenty of typing upgrades in 3.10, among which we have finally shorthand union syntax, right? Using the binary operator, the pipe character. Yeah. <laughs> which is what we should be having all along. It makes, you know expressing non-trivial types so much cleaner like it, it it is it is a very very big even though it doesn't look like it it's a very big upgrade to usability of typing so i'm very excited about that and maybe surprisingly alongside with the new parser that enabled the match statement uh, a bunch of errors that python reports to you became easier to understand like many syntax errors that were very puzzling before make more sense right now if you mistype a variable now it will suggest to you like what variable name you actually wanted and so on and so on so the quality of life of a regular statistically average python developer is about to improve so i'm excited to hear uh, actual user opinions on how Python 3.10 works for people. There's a couple things there I wanted to kind of touch on. When I was researching a lot of stuff for this Python 3.10 show that came out just before this one, uh, I, I was noticing that that terminology, the BPO thing, and almost all of those uh, enhancements of, of, of error correction or um, error, you know, syntax kind of stuff, uh, were all mentioned as uh, BPOs, uh, as opposed to PEPs. And I thought that was really interesting. And I think they're going to be really, really great. 
So that's kind of where those kind of came up for me. And then I thought about it and there's kind of two things there with how the peg parser can kind of parse forward and not simply stop and and point, you know, like this is the last thing I understood. Yeah. <laughs> but it's able to go forward a bit and and say, "Oh, I kind of got more context here of like what you were trying to do and and I can make a much more positive suggestion." It is definitely a much more advanced parser, both in terms of uh, kind of performance that you're uh, that you're actually getting, because you know, like what what many people don't know is that we have not been using an LL1 pure grammar for a long while in Python. Like what happened instead was we had a grammar that used LL1. But then a bunch of things that were allowed by it were invalid Python. So we, we actually had to have another pass where we would later on reject some of the things that the parser accepted, saying, hey, this is actually invalid. We, we don't actually allow this. This is not good. I, for example, a, a, around like what is allowed on the left and right side of an assignment, right? Like in the LL1 my grammar, essentially, there, there was no difference between the two. But we as Python programmers know that, well, there's a world of difference. Um, so now the pick parser like removes uh, the necessity of, of hacks like this, but it also adds like a lot of flexibility. One of the biggest, well, kind of surprises in the match statement functionality is that the match and case keywords aren't actually true keywords. They are contextual yeah. keywords, meaning you can still have a code that uses match and case as names. You can still have variables like this. You can still have methods and you know classes like this. You can have modules that are like this. In fact, case py is right in the standard library. It's part of the unit test package. Mm. So, so the thing is, this is now a totally new level of flexibility for the language. Like, I... I'm not worried that we're going to be uh, overusing this, but the flexibility it gives is going to be crucial in making sure that the language can still evolve. Because, for example, imagine a match statement uh, feature that we would supposed to add if we couldn't make contextual keywords. Uh, there must be there must be hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lines of code that have match in there yeah, I'm as a variable name, right? Like there's, there must be many regular expressions or whatever where they're just using match as an, a variable name or whatever. So this kind of feature would just be, you know, kind of paralyzed by having to choose a keyword that is not not used by the code in the wild. And that's virtually impossible for a language that is 30 years old. So the parser essentially enabled this entire new era of development in CPython. Yeah, it's yeah, I'm very excited about that too. So what I'm thinking about in the next one is uh, what do you want to learn next? Uh, well, like, there's a bunch of things, right? I'm not sure how many things I'm going to actually get into looking at, you know, how people are using Python, for example. The arguably biggest user right now has to be data science, right? Like, you know, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but, you know, it's, it's a very, very important use. Yeah. And I haven't ever done much data science in any meaningful sense, right? Like I've done a little NumPy and that's essentially it. I've never used pandas 
I've never used TensorFlow. Like some of the terms like flowing on Twitter, I kind of maybe could fool you in a conversation that I know what, what, what they're, what they're about, but I, I don't actually. So, you know, fixing that, I feel, is also a responsibility of somebody who's the developer in residence and kind of, you know, is supposed to make life better for all of users of Python, right? Like, I, I come from this backend world, so async IO, you know, typing, like, you know, I, I understand that and th this is definitely my comfort zone. But when we're talking about, you know, kind of tensors and um, matrix multiplications or, you know, uh, unsupervised training, like rah, 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 like all of those things, that's totally new for me. So that's definitely something I would want to look closer into. Well, probably starting with the new year. Yeah, that sounds good. And so we kind of end each episode with sort of shout outs or plugs. Do you have any things that you want to shout out currently? Uh, yeah, sure. So. At this point, I am pretty impressed in uh, some of the, well, contributors to Python that we just recently gained. They're very consistently good at the number of changes they're making and at the quality of changes that they're making. So I would just want to just go ahead, thank them for it. Let me just bring out their names so I don't misspell them or like, mispronounce them since I know that that can be a little embarrassing so first first of all we have uh andre kulakov thanks andre you're being great another person that i see a lot is nikita sobolev thanks nikita and the third person doing a lot of typing related changes that i see recently is yuri kagabas from lviv in ukraine so those three essentially spend crazy amounts of time on improving CPython right now, uh, I, I am very happy to see this new activity. I, I cannot be sure just looking at their profile pictures, but they look like they're quite a bit younger than I am myself. So that's, that's also reassuring that, hey, we're not working on a dying project. This is not the new COBOL. <laughs> Essentially, new people are still interested in this. There's still, you know, kind of life here. So yeah, like, thanks for that. This is very important because it also shows, you know, that the project uh, keeps being used and important to new generations. Yeah. Uh, and plugs? Well, I don't really have anything to plug myself at the moment. I'm essentially kind of living the dream at, the, uh, at this point. But what I would like you to look at is textual and rich. Like those are libraries that I didn't know I needed until they were created. And now pretty much every piece of Python code that I write have them <laughs> because they're just nice. Like textual is the newest one because it's still something that is kind of early in the development, but it's already kind of Re rethinking how I create command line tools. Like until very recently, I was mostly creating very bare bones tools where, oh yeah, they were nice Unix types tools that they got some input, they generated some output, uh, or they just did something on the side as is very popular right now. But there wasn't really much interactivity to them. Textual changes that. Now you can actually kind of think of your application as something interactive uh, and do it with relatively little code and also still composing very well with async.io, which is increasingly important in my life for some reason. 
So yeah, like if you haven't looked into textual, you know, have it a go. Try some of the examples. Those are very, very well thought through projects. Yeah, it was it was a fun conversation I had with him recently, and I'm excited by his his continued development. And he's sort of taking time off from his his other roles to kind of focus for a little while. And and then also he's you know doing this sort of give back to the community and open source by you know trying to look at other people's code and you know give them reviews and. Uh, getting the practice of that, which I think is really fantastic too. This is amazing. This is the, yeah, like, thanks, Will. Like, y- y- you're doing this much better than I did. Like, so w- w- when I quit Facebook in December 2018, I decided, like, hey, I-, I-, I actually need some time to just, you know, like stay with my family to just kind of decompress after moving from, well, first North America and then spending six months in London. Like, I, I wanted to essentially, like, be this family man for a while, you know, like see see where I'm at, like decide what I want to do next. And then suddenly, like after almost two years of doing nothing, I, I, I started the next job and like I really don't have much to show for it. You know, it was really kind of wasted time. Like I still enjoyed it. I, I'm not saying, you know, kind of it, it, it was bad in any kind of meaningful sense like it was it was pleasurable but well it was pretty empty in terms of meaning right and will like essentially pretty clearly has a better idea of how he wants to use his his time and i i kind of i, I admire this yeah yeah i think it's super cool i i'm i'm, I'm in, intrigued to see how it goes for him same well thanks so much for coming on the show it's been fantastic to talk to you again <laughs> again a pleasure And don't forget, this episode was sponsored by Datastax AstraDB, built on Apache Cassandra, made easy in the cloud. Learn more at astra.dev slash Python. I want to thank Wukash Langa for coming on the show again. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the Real Python podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.